the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Rita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra saying... Here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Tonight Show. Welcome to John Barber's World Live from Las Vegas. Last night in the uh, first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, our Golden Knights hockey team beat the Los Angeles Kings for three straight, which made me cry. And over the weekend, Donald Trump bombed Syria, which made Alex Jones cry. Once again, This bloated buffoon made it sound as though Trump's actions were not as harmful to the world as to him. America does not have trickle-down economics. It has trickle-down rot and idiots. I bet every day that Trump gets up, he regrets being elected president, only to discover he's working for others who wear uniforms. It is astonishing, after his actions... How many born-agains crawled out of the woodwork and were all over the Internet saying God himself sent Trump to make America great again? Someday, someone's going to stamp on Trump's head, return to sender, signature required. Then maybe we wouldn't have to hear about either of them again. There were some, there were thousands actually, who wondered out loud how America could make another mistake like Iraq or Afghanistan. What they don't realize is that for our country run by the military, this is not a mistake. This is their purpose with fake news and fake wars to pick on countries that can't fight back. Our foreign policy is so stupid. In Poland, they tell American jokes. Some staff members I hear at the White House I'm not even certain Trump will be around for too much longer. I heard yesterday when Trump ordered his usual cheeseburger for lunch, his waiter said, is this for here or to go? <laughs> instead, instead of Americans building a wall across the southern border to keep Mexicans out, they should build one around D.C. to keep these warmongering maniacs in. Then the people, as Thomas Jefferson suggested, could go in there and drain the swamp themselves. Two months ago, I spoke to a media class at New York University about our film, The American Media, and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which I am delighted to tell you is still a runaway hit on Amazon, and thanks to all of you. But I did not speak nearly as well as my guest which is why I can see is one of the most sought-after speakers in the country, especially when it comes to exposing the deep, deep state. 
after a very long and very successful career reporting in the mainstream media, the site he founded, Who, What, Why, with its large dedicated staff, is now recognized as the most thorough, most widely respected and read in the country with what they call forensic journalism. He's also the author of the very best book on the Bush is called Family of Secrets. I've watched and listened to him on the Internet for years, where his contributions to informing us are lively, literate and entertaining. And to thousands of you, thousands of you, no secret. I'm truly delighted to be talking to and listening again to my friend, Russ Baker. Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. You know, and I hope one day to meet this fellow you were just describing. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, not, 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 not the hamburger guy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Anyway, where are you calling from? I, I'm, 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 I'm in Petaluma, California. And why are they there? Well, I, uh, I came out to attend a symposium on journalism uh, and was once again disappointed at the uh, analysis of the uh, so-called leading lights of our profession. But uh, uh, once, uh, besides being there, I'm uh, doing my endless rounds of trying to raise money for our website, Who, What, Why is a 501c3 nonprofit. We don't accept any advertising. Uh, we don't get money from these big foundations or corporations. So I got to be out hustling all the time. And I'm also just came from a meeting with a, a couple of people who are going to be working with us on our uh, ongoing uh, Russiagate investigation. So doing that as well. Uh, do, do, you, uh, 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 do you have people who subscribe to you on Patreon? You know, we, we don't. Um, I, uh, my, my take is, and I know that all these things exist, but my take is that, that uh, by and large, most of the vehicles for re- fundraising from uh, masses of people are not that effective. Some people luck out, but by and large, they don't raise that much. Uh, and so unfortunately, uh, or, or fortunately, whatever it is, I have to cultivate individual relationships, relationships with people. We, we do have donors on our site, you know, our readers, uh, but, but the, the statistics on, uh, on donations are that no matter what you do, it's, it's way under 1% of your readers are going to give you anything. Well, in, in my case, there are two sites that I support because I like uh, reading them. You're probably familiar with them too. And, and you know, I'm too lazy. I, I'm too lazy or too forgetful to write a $25 check every month. So if I wanted to contribute to you, and I certainly do because I'm a massive fan, how could I go about doing it? So oh, that I just, don't have to go ahead. Sure, you, you, John, you just go to our donate page. And right there, it allows you to sign up for monthly donations. Oh, well, then wonderful. I will do that. And that's the donate page on who, what, why, correct? Yeah, it's a, the website is whowhatwhy.org, O-R-G, signifying that we're a nonprofit. Okay, now you're in California. Are you on your way to Los Angeles? Isn't Los Angeles where you were born? Uh, it is where I was born. I now live in New York City. I don't think I'm going to get there on this trip. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, uh, I do, I do visit when I can and, uh, hope to get down there at some point in the, in the near future. 
Could you could you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you as a youngster, uh, Russ? Exactly where you went to school? A little bit about your your family, and if you had any siblings, who were the largest influences on your life? And when you were a teenager, I don't imagine that you thought much about journalism or writing, or did you? Could you give us give me some background on that? All right, I'm going to do this kind of fast, and if it's okay with you, I'm going to skip some of the details, names, and stuff like that, and just go real quick. Uh, sure. Basically, uh, I grew up in a household where my father – uh, worked in the defense industry, but was a peace activist. Uh, it was uncomfortable. He, he kind of had his own awakening as to the nature of the system uh, and eventually went out on his own and started a business and was able to feel more comfortable with himself, I think. Uh, but he was uh, very involved with all sorts of good causes, including fair housing. When we grew up, there were a lot of these housing covenants where black people, Latinos, uh, Jews, and so forth weren't allowed to live in, uh, you know, buy houses or neighborhoods. And so he campaigned against those things. He worked on all kinds of things for the United Farm Workers and things. And so I'm very proud of, of, you know, having grown up with parents who inspired me. Um, And I started sort of politicking at a young age when I was even in elementary school. Uh, I was already working on various causes and you know, raising money, catching quarters from from the other kids to go to various causes. Uh, so I worked, I started, got involved in politics. And while I was doing all my other things, including I, ran, I had a couple of businesses when I was in my teens. And I was a trumpet player. I played in the marching bands, really? orchestras, jazz bands and stuff like that. And then I also worked in the family business after school. So I had a million things going on. Somehow, I don't know, I did it, pulled them all off worked on these political campaigns. And my, my last campaign, uh, I, I went to UCLA. Uh, I went to public schools. Uh, I learned how to fight. Uh, and I went to UCLA <laughs> for political science. And then uh, uh, when I graduated, I, I was hired to run the first ever political campaign against uh, the tobacco industry. And it was a... Oh, my. Um, it was a ballot initiative in California to try to mandate that that restaurants and other public places had to provide some space for non-smokers, which at the time was a very radical idea. We we were actually campaigning for designated non-smoking areas without even a formal uh, barrier between the two, just an area where people can sit contiguously without somebody next to them smoking. And uh, anyway, I was the campaign manager. I was all about 20 or 21 years old, and uh, we almost won. They they spent a huge fortune against us, but that got the ball rolling. And I like to think that we played a role in what is today uh, a largely smoke-free America. Well, you know, that went on for decades and decades. I mean, uh, uh, scientists and people like yourself must have known of the harmful effects of uh, tobacco and nicotine. But I remember Ed Murrow on person to person actually used to smoke on the air. I remember the six o'clock CBS news. I can't remember the name of the anchor man. It was sponsored by a cigarette company and he smoked on the air. An anchor man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was just remarkable. So, okay. You, you graduate, you become a journalist. When did you, get your first job and how did you get your first job 
Well, it's kind of funny, John. I uh, At UCLA, I wanted to take journalism courses, but they had decided to, to kill the journalism department there. So I was able to take a couple of classes, but I ended up majoring in political science instead. Uh, and I went to UCLA because it was affordable. It was a very good school. And it, back then, it was very affordable if you were an in-state person. Um, and so, uh, but after I finished school, maybe because I didn't study journalism, I didn't go into journalism. I, I spent my 20s uh, doing other things, including businesses. And basically in my late twenties, I said, what am I doing with my life? I got to do something more meaningful. So I, 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 I used to take vacations from work where I would go to places like I, I went to Nicaragua during at the height of the Contra wars in the eighties. Wow. I went to El Salvador. I went to all these kind of places and people said if, if their, their comments varied from you're crazy to, gee, that's, that sounds like you ought to do that you know, full-time. So I decided to become a journalist. I was in my already mid to late 20s, which was kind of old for the profession. And I decided to go to, to get in there, and I couldn't figure out how to get in. And somebody suggested I go to graduate school. So much to my astonishment, I was accepted into the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, went out to New York, and somehow I ended up staying there and uh, just basically began freelancing. And I wrote for all kinds of places. I wrote for the uh, much-respected thing called the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, yes, and, I recall. And I wrote from around the world. I worked for a publication called The Village Voice, uh, which allowed me to do these tremendous, huge investigative pieces, cover stories. I was just uh, given a lot of freedom there, worked there, started doing radio, some TV, and, and then working and, and contributing pieces to everybody from... Uh, uh, the Nation magazine to the uh, to Vanity Fair and Esquire and the New York Times and the Times of London and what have you. And I, I kind of built up this whole business freelancing for publications all over the world. I was particularly proud of one where I went after the United Nations for failing to try to track down Radovan Karadzic, the, uh, uh, the mastermind of the, uh, of the uh, murderous, uh, uh, onslaught in the former Yugoslavia. And um, my piece, I ended up selling it one at a time to, I think it was as many as 26 different uh, top newspapers and magazines around the world. And I was delighted that uh, was I maybe a year later, they, they caught him. And I, I can't prove it, but I like to think I was able to stick a bug in their ear or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, so I did that and I, I got a chance to work in uh, I went to right out of journalism school. I went off on my own dime to Central Africa, the precursors to what happened in Rwanda with the Hutu and Tutsi. I covered that, uh, and and uh, and I went to uh, Berlin, uh, and I was there in East Berlin uh, when the wall came down. Uh, and then I reported for radio and TV, and uh, I went to uh, Romania, and I was, I believe, the or one of the first foreign journalists in that country as their totalitarian regime collapsed. I had a chance to see those things, went out to Mexico. I was in Chiapas when the, uh, uh, the Zapatistas had their uprising. Uh, you know, I went to Indonesia in the, uh, the rainforest to see how that was all being destroyed. So I, I had this chance really on my own initiative to go all over the world and see uh, all kinds of stories unfolding, to see abuses of power. And that really kind of uh, set me on my course, which was to remain independent and try to do meaningful uh, storytelling to the public. Well, it's evident you inherited your father's uh, genes, because I felt that sweetness about you, even though you're tough, 
I felt that sweetness about you when I met you. And your background sounds very, very similar to Chris Hedges, who did the same thing. And, you know, there was a time when the Village Voice really did some great reporting, but it doesn't do it anymore. As a matter of fact, maybe a lot of them don't do it anymore. But I recall reading a wonderful thing you did. I believe the lady's name was Judith Miller, uh, the New York Times, when Bush was preparing to go into Iraq, and she was drum beating on his behalf. And I think you were the first one I read who took her to task for what she did. Uh, well, yeah, I did a piece. Uh, I guess I proposed it to the Nation magazine. And I said, you know, this whole war was uh, sold under false pretenses. And I said, you know, look, this, this woman and this newspaper, this hallowed institution, and this woman with this tremendously uh, lucky, if you want to say, uh, professional career. And uh, she was, uh, you know, just a toast. Uh, and, and I said, you know, they, they really shouldn't get away with this. So I did the piece and they did, uh, I believe it was a cover story. Uh, and then everybody else piled on, um, you know, it's kind of funny, uh, throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to do those kinds of stories and the mainstream media has never credited me, even after they all, you know, piled on and decided that she was terrible. When I talk to people to this day, they say, Oh, really? You did that? Oh, I didn't know about that, but they're, they're not even interested, you know? Because that's the way the media is. The media is a pack, John, and you know that very, very well, and you've got a great a media critique. The media is basically a pack, and it's a lot of people who, you know, I, I like most journalists, and I think they're decent people, but they're not, uh, they're not stellar, they're not geniuses, and they're not necessarily incredibly bold. Most of them are, are decent people trying to do a decent job with, uh, you know, uh, somewhat limited possibilities, and so they tend to stay in a pack. And when the PAC is saying that, uh, that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, they all report that. Uh, when the PAC is saying that uh, uh, Bashar Assad uh, is, is, is the one doing these chemical weapons attacks, they don't question it, uh, even though they should. And so, you know, I, I saw that, and I saw that again and again, that I would break away, do my own story. And then I saw how this mob would eventually turn and go in the opposite direction, and they were embarrassed that they hadn't uh, been bold, and they then didn't want to acknowledge or credit or hire people like me. So I stayed an independent course, and of course that's what led me eventually to to start Who, What, Why, which I said, you know, we need a different news organization here. We need a completely different news organization that doesn't care what people think and what the PAC is doing, and we just uh, we just go our own way. Before we get to who, what, why, there was somebody who did indeed hire you, though, and that was John Kennedy Jr. You wrote for his magazine called George. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Did he ever talk to you about his father? Because I know uh, there are a half a dozen people in this country who are absolute absolutely and totally brilliantly informed on the murder of John Kennedy. And you happen to be one of them. And many of your videos are absolutely thrilling. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. Well, I, I just kind of came in through the front door there. Uh, John had started that magazine uh, and uh, being a freelancer, I was always out pitching and I just basically managed to, persuade one of his editors to meet me for lunch. And I came in with a folder full of story ideas and rattled them off. 
And then she chose a few she liked, and I sent them in. And uh, much to my astonishment, they chose what was probably the riskiest story of all. Uh, and apparently he had uh, been uh, involved in that decision, and that was to, to fund me to fly to Germany and do a big walloping investigation of the Church of Scientology, uh, which uh, basically what was happening back in the U.S. was they were running, I don't know if you remember, they were running full-page ads in the New York Times and maybe in other papers, basically uh, accusing um, uh, the U.S. government um, and, and other governments, including the government of Germany, uh, of clamping down on them and comparing their fate to that of the Jews under the Nazis. <laughs> and, of course, this was so incredible to me. And I said, you know, I want to find out what's actually happening in Germany. And I was riveted by the fact that Germany's position was, you know, they had allowed uh, the Nazis and Hitler to rise to power, and they weren't going to do it again. And they saw Scientology as a dangerous entity that really needed to be curtailed and so they were trying to equate the german government to the to the to the weimar government or something and 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 instead uh, the germans were seeing themselves as the exact opposite i thought it was a great story john agreed and and he sent me there i still remember um when i was in germany and the scientologists were harassing me <laughs> as they always did uh but but when i was there i was in berlin and i went to a street market and i found some Souvenirs from when his father had been in Berlin and had, you know, made his famous wow. Berliner speech. And uh, I, I brought him back and, and him, and I still have a, a saved a recording on my answering phone where John called me to thank me. He'd never seen these items before, uh, and I think he was a gutsy guy. I think he was sold short by the media. They were always trying to make him out to be a lightweight. Um, and you know, I can't speak to. Uh, that subject of what he thought about uh, his father's death. But I can tell you that my general sense was that he did believe there was more to the story and that uh, he was, uh, I think, looking for an opportunity to pursue it. I also think he was getting ready to go into electoral politics. And so, of course, the uh, tragic uh, circumstances and timing of his death is the sort of thing that makes you wonder. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, okay, it, there comes a point then, you're going to start who, what, and why. Was there one particular story that prompted you to do this because it was there was no place else you could tell a story unless you created your own form? Uh, well, what happened was uh, in, the, in the early uh, aughts, I was living in Belgrade, Serbia, uh, that's a whole long story, but I lived there for almost two years, and I was there when the war, uh, the invasion of Iraq began, and um, I, I noticed how people became so hostile to me as an American. Everywhere I went in the, in Europe, they'd say, "You Americans, and how dare you question us Serbs?" And so I look at look at what you do, and I thought, "My God, what has happened to my country?" So I I went back to the U.S. in 2004. And much of my astonishment, having written in 2003 about the Iraq War and Judith Miller and so on, there was George, H., George W. Bush running for re-election, and he was uh, uh, doing well. And I said, I don't get this. And he's running against John Kerry, a, a war hero who's a more a comparative peacenik, uh, and, he, and, and, and Bush is doing well. And I said, I, I got a report on this. So I began traveling in the United States on my own dime, doing stories, um, and I did some stories uh, uh, about uh, Bush's 
uh, National Guard record. You may remember some of that, that uh, Bush had himself a total hypocrite uh, from yeah. a family that was all for war for anybody else to go. He had uh, escaped the military service and got in safe a National Guard domestic flying a plane. And then he went AWOL from that. And I, I researched that and did a bunch <laughs> of stories. Uh, but, but what happened, John, was I came upon uh, a man who knew George W. Bush personally, who uh, didn't want to talk to me, eventually did, and began telling me stories about Bush. And some of the stories he told me were so huge that I thought, my God, we got to get these stories out before the election. One of them, uh, uh, he told me that uh, even before George Bush had run for president, years before 9-11, Bush had already told him that he was thinking of invading Iraq. And of course, the only reason they, they claimed that they invaded Iraq was because uh, uh, Saddam was, they were trying to claim he was tied in with al-Qaeda and so on, which all turned out to be untrue. But he was already looking for a reason. And, and, and I, I, I had this story, and I, I was doing it for one publication, and then for a complicated set of reasons, they ended up not publishing it, killing the story. I took it to another place they wanted to do, then another, then another. And I finally just threw my hands up. I said, none of these people are going to publish maybe the biggest story of our time. Uh, and, and, and it was a story uh, that any journalist would have been proud to do because it, 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 it would have uh, been, uh, you know, I think a decisive factor in people's consideration of whether he should have been reelected or not. So, you know, coming out of that, I said, number one, um, I said I wanted to learn more about the Bush family because I started discovering all these secrets. And I began working on my first book, which became Family of Secrets, uh, not, not just about the Bushes, but discovered, as, as you know, about their connections to all sorts of nefarious things in American history that had never been uh, unearthed before, including George H.W. Bush's uh, uh, knowledge of the uh, circumstances involved with the Kennedy assassination. So all of this stuff just boggled my mind, made me realize that journalism was not digging into the deepest, darkest things about how power works in this country. Uh, and I just said, you know, I, I, I've got to find a way to do and to enable journalism that tells the truth without fear or favor. And I began thinking maybe I should just start my own thing. And, and, and I had no money. I had nobody backing me or anything. And it was it was very, very difficult. But but in, in around 2005, so it's quite a few years ago, I began setting up uh, in my so-called spare time what became who, what, why. Well, I must tell you, it is it is astonishing. I mean, you you seem to have a very large dedicated staff. I mean, your podcasts, the various stories that you cover, it's just absolutely amazing. And I assure you, when we were done, I will go to the site again and I will arrange for you guys to take 25 or 30 bucks every month out of my my bank account. And I'll be happy to do so because I wanted to do it on Patreon, but I could I could not find it to you right now. What is the most disturbing story in America? Or non-story? Yeah, you know, I mean, there are several. Uh, I, well, I would say, first of all, that, that you, know, as, you know, and we have, we're, I, I think, I'm proud to say, I think we're leading the way on this, the Russiagate investigation. I know some people think it's overblown. Um, I think it's complicated. I, I think one can argue that, uh, you know, anything Putin did, <laughs> that the U.S. has also done similar things. I think you can argue that uh, he presents a, 
you know, important counterbalance, whether you like him or not. But at the same time, I think it is a real story. I think, you know, some people in the media, uh, particularly the left media, have insisted there was no story there. I'm proud of what we've been doing. We've broken some very big stories. Uh, Michael Cohen, who suddenly everybody's heard of because the FBI raided his premises back in September, that's seven months earlier, we published a huge investigative piece on Michael Cohen, uh, which uh, I think to this day is the definitive one and never got picked up by any of the mainstream media. Uh, but, but having said that about the importance of, of, of investigating Trump and investigating Russia's influence, uh, I, I, I think that what has happened is that has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. And these other stories about the, uh, who you know, controls power in America, who really controls power, on an ongoing basis, uh, and, and how these abuses continue to happen all the time, how we end up not really living in uh, a democracy, not really having good awareness, what our choices are, or what's going on. To me, that is the big untold story. I'm not sure it's ever been told, but right now it's certainly not being told. What do you think is going to happen to America? What do you think is going to happen to Trump? I had Daniel Sheehan on uh, about a month or so ago, and he's deeply involved with a lot of very prominent attorneys and politicians in trying to arrange for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Do you think that will go anywhere? Do you think he will survive his first four years? And if he does, do you think he will rerun? You know, first of all, I am not a fan of predicting anything, and I don't consider myself an activist, so I don't state a preferred outcome. Uh, I think that uh, anything can happen, and I know that sounds funny, but sometimes I have a feeling like I predicted that Donald Trump might, or maybe I said would win uh, the presidency. I just, you know, I had a strong feeling about it. Right now, I don't have a strong feeling. I think that nobody really can predict. There are so many uncertainties. Um, I literally think that it ranges from the possibility that uh, he could be removed from office, uh, be forced to resign, uh, end up somehow you know, being prosecuted for <laughs> a range of crimes and end up in jail, all the way to the fact that he could weather this thing and be reelected. I think it really is all possible. Well, it certainly is. As Charles Dickens said in A Tale of Two Cities, it's the best of times, and it is certainly the worst of times. And your site makes it all so interesting. So once again, tell us uh, where people can go to read your material, to read the material of those who work with you, and to how they can support you. So it's whowhatwhy.org, O-R-G, and uh, as, as I mentioned, we are a nonprofit. All of our funding comes from people like your listeners, uh, and we put it all right away into doing uh, journalism on the things that matter, uh, whowhatwhy.org. We also have Twitter and Facebook, uh, and then my own stuff, uh, my book, Family of Secrets. I think uh, people will find an interesting read about untold the untold backstory of American history, not just about the Bushes, but about uh, the Kennedy assassination. I also have a number of chapters on Watergate, and I tell a different story of what actually happened in those epochs than you've heard before. Uh, that, that book, 
Um, and that's really it. We also welcome people to uh, spread the word about what we do. And if they've got skill sets and they want to volunteer, always glad to hear from them. They can always contact us via the website. That's fantastic. The book itself, Family of Secrets, is just a fantastically interesting and well, well-written read. I mean, not only are you a terrific writer, you are a wonderful speaker. I learned, I mean, I learned a lot listening to you at New York University, and I look forward to coming back there and going to that wonderful restaurant with the cabaret that you took me to. Again, thank you so, so much, Russ, for being on the show. Do you still play the trumpet at all? <laughs> Only occasionally, but when you live in an apartment in New York, they don't really appreciate it. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. And where are you off to next? Well, I'm I'm staying in the Bay Area for a few days, and then it'll be back to New York and back to the salt mines on the big stories we're pursuing. Well, again, Russ, thank you. You're a total. I yeah. I mean, your family and your father must have been so proud of what you have done because I'm certainly proud of what you do, and I'm so honored that I met you and got to spend some time with you. You give my best to everyone, especially to that nice young lady too. Uh, I think she said, or you told me she said, well, I, I reminded her of Gorby Taller. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, anyway, Russ, thank you so much. The best of luck to you. Thank you all for listening. And please go to Russ's site, who, what, why, and donate. And I hope to talk to you again soon, Russ. Thank you again. Thank you. We will be right back with Joe Satilli creator of News Vandal. Thank you for that smile upon your face Oh, sunny Hi, this is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Hi, I'm Richard Valzer, and this is The Great BBS Radio. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now. You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on BBS Radio. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers 
including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon. They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific and I'd say historic film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to John Barber's World Live in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. It's a little after 5.30 right now. And again, I want to thank Russ Baker uh, for doing the, the show Thank Russ for building that site, who, what, and why. And also, I I just love doing this show because one of the reasons I get to do the show is because I get to talk to people like that. But then every two weeks, I get to talk to Joe Satilli and read his news vandal. And we were chatting during the break about the opening. So go ahead, Joe. What were you saying? Oh, I just, you know. If, if for people who are not up, who know you only as somebody who has been uh, a champion and a truth teller around the Kennedy assassination, which I think you almost have three stages of your career. You have your early stand-up stage, which sort of culminates with uh, the, the album uh, and and that success in getting you into television. Then you have that television career, which starts in L.A. as a as a film critic, and you're award-winning. And that leads somehow, I don't know how you pulled it off, but it leads to Real People, which was one of the one of the most successful shows, the, one of the first reality shows of all time. Uh, but at its time, one of the most successful shows on air, just pulling ratings like crazy. And then you have this third act of your life, which is as this uh, indefatigable, just tireless crusader to try and uh, tell the truth behind the Kennedy assassination. I think most people know you for that final uh, stage. A lot of people remember you for the second stage because that real people thing really sticks with you. And as you know, in our discussions, it was a seminal show for me as a young man. You know, it introduced me to you, to that style of, of programming, that style of production. Those are production values that I think informed me when I became a television news producer, uh, getting out of the way, letting people tell the stories. Uh, and then also introduced me to Mark Russell and really developed, helped to develop my love of political satire. But as you and I have discussed on air many times, off air many times, I'm also a comedy head. And there's <laughs> nothing, there is nothing like a well-written joke. And for people who don't know or have never read one of your letters or one of your, your sharply uh, ironic missives that you will send to people and they don't know that they're being insulted but you're completely insulting them but they're laughing because the jokes are funny but they don't realize that they're they're the butt of the joke that kind of ability is a rare thing uh in the world of comedy and you are one of the people who has that well i appreciate that and again i guess one of the reasons i enjoy doing this even though it costs you to do it is I, is i love to write jokes because it's a way it, it's sort of like a, a survival mechanism, you know, yeah. and I spent I spent five years writing my autobiography, which will be called um, Your Mother's Not a Virgin. And, you know, I uh, there was a time 
when I went looking for my father in England back around 1960 and I ended up in a repertory company, I could have been a very successful actor. But I gave it up. And the reason I gave it up is because it was all make-believe. And, you know, when you come from a miserable background and you and I have each experienced that, you want to enjoy reality. You don't want to escape from it. So, so you don't take drugs and you don't drink a lot of alcohol. And I quit being an actor because it was make-believe and I thought I want to enjoy real life. And so that's why I started doing stand-up comedy. And I didn't even attempt it until I was 30. I didn't even know I could write a joke for crying out loud. I, I used to, as a kid, to avoid fights, I, you know, I could, I could ad lib a joke, but I didn't even know that I could, uh, I could write one. So, or you probably didn't even know that you were consciously ad libbing. You were just doing what came naturally to you because the ad libbing, I, what I think, ad, the ability to ad lib usually comes from a deep love of language, and not just words and the meanings of words and double entendres and triple entendres, but also the the lyricism and the melody of language, because I think a lot of comedy comes from timing and melody as well. Oh, you know, that's perfectly said. It is like melody. It's almost like music. The rhythm and right. timing has to be right. Now, I didn't want to make this about me, but the ending of the book. So the end of the book, I had decided that what I'm going to do when it's published and out, I'm going to go back to doing stand up. Oh, that's perfect. Because because it, 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 when I was writing the opening to this show, I thought so much about you in two instances. First of all, the business I read in News Vandal and one of the, 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 the stories that you wrote about Alex Jones crying. Now, I thought you were joking. Now, right. I, cannot, I cannot watch him. Even if I agreed with him, I can't watch him because he's yelling at me. He seems to think that the truth increases with the amount of volume that he expresses by yelling at us. It doesn't. You can whisper the truth, and it's the truth. But when I saw him crying, I started laughing. <laughs> it's I mean, so hard not to. <laughs> it's hard not to laugh. Here's this horrible thing going on in Syria, and here's this guy sobbing on the air. And it was bad enough. I forget the Englishman who was on CNN a couple of years ago, and he went. I think he replaced Larry King, or they tried. Oh to yes, yeah. He's a uh, he. He's a. Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember him. He's basically he was a tabloid guy. Piers that's Morgan. Right. Piers that's Morgan. Right. Piers Morgan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And when I saw Alex on that, I was so embarrassed. It was just <laughs> awful. Okay, but well, I have a question about that because there is a a a theory out there that Alex Jones is what is what some people called controlled opposition because at this yeah. point he really is just a shtick, right? <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. It's just, and you have to wonder how many of the people who follow him, follow him kind of knowing that they're, that he's a shtick, that this whole thing is a, is, is somewhat of a put on and they're in on the joke, but it's so entertaining and it's so, there's there's it's so compelling to watch on some level and the way you like to watch a train wreck or like to watch a multi-car crash you know uh it, you know when like when the highway is icy and you just see one car after another you know invariably crashing into one another <laughs> we like that it's the it's the same thing with nascar right it's like waiting for the accident but 
on some level, because he established himself in the post 9-11 period as somebody who was who would later be, I guess, termed a 9-11 truther. I hate the, tame, the, name, the term truther because it basically turns um, truth into a fetish and, um, and, uh, and a, and not just a fetish, but, a um, an epithet, right? If you're after the right. truth, there's, it's, it becomes an epithet. So I don't like that, but you know, he was doing nine 11 and then during the Iraq war, he was against the military industrial complex and he was against the Republicans and he was against, and it seems that he has done this complete 180 in service of Donald Trump from the positions he used to take just about an eight or in, you know, seven or eight years ago. And the yeah. question is, is why is he doing it? And I would say it's, it's very, very simple. I think it's just money. I mean, I think most of what we think of people say there's a liberal media in America. Well, no, if you look at it, there's a, there's a, free market media in America. They are pursuing dollars. Everything that they are doing is because it is. they believe it is making them the most amount of money. And they believe that probably for good reason, because they get feedback, because they get ratings. Most of what we see is the decisions that are made are made for the bottom line, not for any political agenda. I, I've worked in the media. I've seen it happen. Trust me, folks, they're doing it for cash. And that's just the reality of it. And I think that he's doing it for cash, but there are people who think that he's actually controlled opposition. And if you, it kind of makes sense insofar as the presence of Alex Jones is actually destroying the hard work and years and years of critical thinking that people like yourself have done on things that used to be called conspiracy theories, but not conspiracy theories in a kind of sad joke kind of way, but in a, oh, well, that's somebody who's, you know, off around the edges trying to figure out the truth and that stuff that doesn't break through the mainstream media. In a way, conspiracy theories have become completely mainstream now and they've become mainstreamed and ridiculed because of people like Alex Jones. Exactly. So what I would like you to do, because I've tried to read everything about what's going on in Syria. Can you sort of explain this to me yeah well i think you know there's one thing that stood out to me in the analysis that i saw in the lead up is one guy colonel jack jacobs and i don't like military people on on television talking that they you know i just don't trust them but this is one guy who really i think cut to the quick when he said look everybody in the pentagon knows that the game is over in syria Basically, the Islamic State, which is called ISIS, it really should be called Daesh, uh, is over. It's toast. It's gone. That was mm-hmm. the mission objective of U.S. military involvement in northern Iraq and in uh, eastern Syria. That was the primary goal. When Barack Obama put the red line down about chemical weapons and then didn't go in, why? Well, there were two things that happened. One, the United Kingdom blanked the parliament was not going to support going in so he didn't so that was that was kind of a a get out of jail free card for barack obama and then he turned to congress and he said well if i'm going to do this i want you to go on record supporting it and congress said not us don't look at us we ain't doing it so barack obama said okay then i'm not going to launch these this attack and that has been termed in retrospect it has been termed as a feckless act i think of it as a smart act. Okay. That's actually a good idea. Let's not go get involved in a civil war just because of some hard, almost impossible to verify 
supposed use of chemical weapons. Well, I think that in the case of Donald Trump, there is so much about his presidency, which is his attempt to ju- attempt, which is his attempt to based on his attempt, pardon me, to juxtapose himself against Barack Obama. And so he has set down this red line. And remember, we went through this last year with the red line, uh, supposedly chemical weapons used. He's, he, you know, Ivanka shows him the video. He says, this can't stand. There's a red line. I'm going to prove that my genitals are larger than Obama's genitals. <laughs> and so we're going to launch missiles. And I'm going to, I'm, I, not only are my genitals larger, I'm going to launch them at people, you know, because that's pretty much what a Tomahawk missile is. It's a, you know, it's a giant American mechanized genital that we fire at people. So <laughs> he, so he does this. And last year, what's interesting about it, the great reporting by Cy Hirsch in Die Welt, which is a German newspaper a magazine combo, is that basically Mattis kept trying to talk him out of it and saying, look, we don't have independent verification of this. We can't verify. We can't verify. And he said, no, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. Why? Because he had the red line and he was not going to be like Obama. He wasn't going to blink at the red line. So what Mattis did was basically worked through back channels with Russia to come up with a target package, which essentially was a tarmac, an empty tarmac with a couple planes left. It was Kabuki theater. It was basically, it was a, it was a, in a sense, it, it was a, it was a play that was written by Mattis and Russia to come up with a way to satisfy Donald Trump's need to fire missiles and show that he did something. And in and to boot, you know, sort of a side benefit is buy Raytheon because every time you fire tomahawks, Raytheon stock prices go up. So everybody wins. So <laughs> fast forward to this time, he does it again. He goes out on Twitter. He he gives uh, Assad a nickname. You know, that start the, the animal, the killer animal. Once you get a nickname, it's all over. You're you're in the you're in the Trump brand now, and so you know he has to close the deal. And I and what I saw in the reporting over time, and particularly in the reporting afterwards, is that Bolton wanted a massive strike. John Bolton, right, the new uh, national security advisor, somebody who the Alex Joneses of the world had hated for years, and suddenly their guy Trump has now made him their made him national security advisor. Wanted this massive strike, wanted to cripple Assad, and Mattis is saying what I think. Colonel Jack Jacobs was basically saying, which is the game's already over. Iran and Russia have won in Syria. Russia is going to have its warm water port in the Mediterranean, which is one of the reasons why, probably the main reason they support Syria, they support Assad uh, in Syria, because they want to have, have, have their military uh, vessels be able to go in and out of a port in the Mediterranean. And Iran, uh, for obvious reasons, why is Iran extending into Iraq and uh, in Syria? For the same reason Stalin wanted all of those satellites in Eastern Europe, because guess what? There are people that are out to get Iran. It's pretty obvious, right? And Bolton's mm-hmm. one of them. So now you have this buffer zone after the war. We forget about this. The Iraq war was right on the border with Iran. The United States had tens of thousands of troops right on the border with Iran in Iraq, a country that was hostile to Iran and has been ever since Iran decided to kick out the leader that was installed by a joint coup, a joint U.S.-United Kingdom coup that installed the Shah of Iran, who was one of the most brutal dictators of the 20th century. So so here we are, you know, who is going to decide the outcome of Syria? Well, the United States has been supporting some of these rebel groups around and 
uh, and it's all turned into a giant mess. Sometimes the, the United States had the, arm, the, the Pentagon supporting a rebel group and the CIA supporting a rebel group. And as late as last year, the two groups were fighting each other. So the United States was actually supporting two rebel groups that were fighting each other, you know, <laughs> which shows you how totally ridiculous the policy was in Syria all along. You get rid of the Islamic State. The Assad has got Syria backed by uh, uh, Russia and Iran. And maybe on some level, the Boltons of the world think, well, if we can get in there and start killing people, when we get to a peace conference in Geneva, we will actually have a seat at the table to help desert, to determine how we're going to cut up the pie of, of Syria. But that's not going to happen. Now, Turkey wants the United States there, which is why I think if anybody was behind a chemical attack or behind faking a chemical attack in Syria, it would probably be somebody associated with Turkey, which makes the most sense to me, because I've seen nothing that shows any evidence that, uh, that there was even a chemical attack there. I mean, we, we have no evidence, right? But because Trump right. is in this general size comparison contest at all times, this strike had to happen. And what I think happened this time was that I know for a fact from the reporting that Mattis basically argued against the massive strike. Thank you, Mad Dog Mattis. You know you're in you're in weird territory when a general nicknamed Mad Dog is the guy who's keeping <laughs> yeah. you from a wider war, right? That, and that so Bolton, Bolton loses that fight, and this strike happens. It was three facilities, and I am absolutely certain that although – uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff Joseph Dunford said there was no coordination. He went out of the way, no coordination with Russia. There is a thing called there are deconfliction channels, and I think that basically uh-huh. we quietly told Russia this is where it's going to happen. Get your, the Iranian troops and the Russian troops out of the way, so we could do like we did last year. We can give Donald Trump his Kabuki theater missile launch, and he can be satisfied, and we can get out of Dodge. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I have a much, much clearer much clearer understanding of it. And I think you're absolutely right about uh, about Turkey. You're right about, you're so good at what it is that you do, Joe. Honest to God, you really uh, have treasure. Thank you so much. Anyway, I want to thank Joe. I want to thank you again. Tell folks where they can get your News Vandal, and let them know that uh, they can go to Patreon, okay? Yeah, just go to newsvandal.com. It's spelled uh, just like it sounds, and there's a Patreon link there. You can also go for a one-time donation at PayPal Me. And John, as ever, my pleasure to be with you, and thank you for keeping me in stitches. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you all for being with me tonight. Oh, God, I hope the LA Kings at least win one hockey game tomorrow night. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Again, with Joe Satilli and another wonderful guest. And as Ed Morrow used to say, good night and good luck.